Hello and welcome to Antiviral, the COVID-19 curriculum for health profession students. As a reminder, the entire curriculum, including case studies, practice exercises, and other resources, is available online at curriculum.covidstudentresponse.org. This episode is a part of Module 2, Epidemiology Principles. The goal of this module is to learn how to apply epidemiological principles to describe the spread of COVID-19, as well as evaluate the potential impact of public health interventions through modeling and historical and contemporary examples. In this episode, we'll discuss predictive models of coronavirus and how we can use them to estimate future cases and how we can work to slow the spread of the virus. Let's get started. So we're going to be talking about predictive models in a little bit, but in order to understand these predictions of coronavirus case numbers, we'll have to discuss a few variables we need to consider and some assumptions we'll have to make in order to run predictive models. The first assumption we'll make is that because this is a new virus that our immune systems have not seen before, almost everyone in the population is susceptible. The next thing we have to consider is the R value for the virus. As discussed in the prior episode on epidemiology basics, the R value is crucial for predicting viral spread, as it represents the number of people that an infected individual is expected to transmit the virus to, and it determines the rate of spread through a population. Based on early numbers, most models have assumed an R0 value of around 2.3, which is higher than the estimated R0 value of about 1 to 2 for the seasonal flu, for example. The third thing to consider is that we can quantify how quickly a virus spreads by calculating the virus doubling time or the amount of time it takes for the number of cases to double. The doubling time was previously estimated to be 5 to 7 days for the United States, but thankfully with social distancing and other containment measures, more recent estimates for the virus's doubling time are now closer to 2 months, though the actual value varies by state. Although the question of whether or not an individual can be reinfected after recovering from COVID remains unanswered, Current models assume that patients cannot be reinfected with the virus in the short term, that is, months to years. On this topic, it's important to note that although there were early case reports of reinfection, those cases may instead reflect deficiencies in test specificity. That is, people who tested positive after recovering from COVID may not have actually been reinfected, but may instead have just gotten a false positive test result suggesting reinfection. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll focus on a simple model of coronavirus cases that assumes the virus spreads exponentially. You can find a great visualization and explanation of this concept in the video linked in the show notes and on the curriculum webpage for this section. As described in that video, this assumption produces a highly accurate model for viral spread. What this exponential spread means is that the virus continues to spread faster and faster which is what we've been seeing with a constantly increasing number of people infected each day compared to the last. But, because we're assuming that individuals cannot be reinfected after recovering from the virus at some point, which we call the inflection point, the growth rate of cases starts to decrease little by little until it reaches a plateau. Uh, In other words, because people can't be reinfected, at some point the virus runs out of susceptible people to infect, and its spread then begins to slow down. Ultimately, if you drew out the number of cases over time, it would form a logistic curve, which sort of looks like an S. 
how could we slow the spread of the virus without having to wait until the virus has started to run out of people to infect? Well, because the rate of spread depends on a few factors, we could potentially decrease the viral spread by modifying those factors. For example, the virus needs exposure to previously uninfected individuals in order to continue its spread. By following social distancing guidelines and stay-at-home orders, we can decrease the rate of viral transmission throughout the population. Yeah, and while this intervention wouldn't necessarily result in a lower overall number of infected individuals by the end of the pandemic, it would prevent the number of infections from increasing so rapidly that our hospital systems are overwhelmed and unable to care for all sick patients. It is this scenario where we are not able to treat all patients suffering from infection or other conditions that would result in the highest number of fatalities overall. And this is why it's so important to abide by social distancing guidelines. And a slower rate of spread might also buy us time to develop a vaccine against the virus, which would act to decrease the number of susceptible individuals in the population, slow the rate of viral spread, and significantly decrease the ultimate number of COVID-19 cases. In the worst case scenario, if we do nothing to change the disease doubling rate, the CDC has estimated up to 214 million cumulative infections in the U.S. That's two-thirds of the American population, as well as 1.7 million deaths. Obviously, these numbers are extremely bleak. But fortunately, our social distancing measures have already proven that they can make a difference. Although we can't stop the virus's spread completely, mitigation strategies like social distancing have been crucial in reducing these bleak predictions. A study investigating the effects of social distancing measures on viral spread in the U.S. found that on the fourth day after implementation, a time span consistent with viral incubation period, the mean daily COVID-19 growth rate dropped by 0.8%. That corresponds to an increase in average doubling time from 3.3 days to 5 days nationwide. Overall, the key takeaway here is that social distancing measures will have a profound effect in delaying the peak in the number of critical COVID cases in the United States. In doing so, we buy the healthcare system valuable time to get ready for the crisis by increasing the personal protective equipment, beds, ventilators, and healthcare workers available to care for those critically ill from the virus and from causes other than the virus, thereby decreasing overall mortality. Again, this is why social distancing is critical. Actually, implementing social distancing requires fundamentally changing our habits and daily routines. Though all 50 states had adopted some form of social distancing measure as of March 27th, adherence has varied from city to city and even household to household. Generally speaking, though, we can each play our part in fighting this virus by reducing all public gatherings of any size, ceasing visits to others' homes, and limiting trips to public spaces such as grocery stores. These measures are uncomfortable and inconvenient, but they're the best tools we have to decrease the overall impact of this pandemic on our communities. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in some useful visualizations of predictive models or additional resources on this topic, check out the full Harvard Medical Student Developed Curriculum at curriculum.covidstudentresponse.org.